How They Train is a podcast where we talk to and lift the lid on exactly how professional athletes train. How They Train was born out of me wanting to know how some of my favorite athletes training compared to my own. But I could just never find any information out there. It, it almost seemed to be kept under lock and key like it was the nuclear codes. However, through my time as an athlete, I started to train with and compete against some world-class guys. And, and what I realized is that everyone is actually pretty open about how they train and what they do. They just have to get to know you first. So I decided to take the conversations I was starting to have on the training tracks and bring them directly to you. I'm Jack Kelly, and today I'm joined by Ironman 70.3 world champion, Ironman Australia champion, two times Ironman 70.3 Asia Pacific champion, three times Ironman 70.3 Australian champion. Look, it's, it's more a case of what hasn't this bloke done. Tim Reid. Reedy, thanks for coming on. How's everything going, mate? G'day, Jack. Yeah, going really well, thanks. Um, thanks for having me on. Ah, my pleasure. Good to be able to talk about, um, you know, one of my favorite topics, which is training. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things I love about you and uh, over my time knowing you is just picking your brain about your philosophies on training and, and what you're doing. Because I do think in the triathlon world, you're sort of one of the, the, the guys at the forefront of how you train. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, they say you've either got overthinkers or underthinkers in the sport and both can do themselves a service and sometimes they can do themselves a disservice. And I've certainly gone too far with things <laughs> and done myself a disservice. Um, but in the process, I've learned a lot of what works and what doesn't work. Um, and also just, you know, unlike most pros, I've always been involved in coaching too. So that that's given me an insight in, what works for me and what hasn't worked isn't necessarily the case for other people. So yeah, I, f I feel like um, I've certainly learned a lot over the years and, and a lot of that learning has come through mistakes more than anything. Yep. Um, have you, uh, have you been out and trained this morning? Mate, I did a little ride this morning. I'm trying not to train over an hour a day at the moment. Just, yeah, just, I just like to keep moving more for mental health than anything else. But I, at the end of this season, uh, at end, end of every season, really, I need a really big break and, uh, and especially my family needs a break as well from me just always having to be outdoors training. So yeah, it's part of the process. <laughs> what does that break look like? So how long will it be and, and, um, and what's the reasoning behind it from a physical standpoint? So I've noticed, I mean, with myself, especially the last few years, and I've noticed it with other athletes too, you get to a place uh, where athletes just don't respond to training anymore. Um, I, and look, you know, part of that is mental. Um, so, and the only way to really get an athlete back to being responsive to training is to stop training. And that could be, you know, for some athletes that might be, if they've done a lot of breaks throughout the year, that might, might only need two, two weeks. It can really uh, vary from athlete to athlete. For me, uh, certainly when I'm, when I'm really unresponsive to training, I'm, I need to have at least four weeks of very little training at all. Um, typically the first week will be almost nothing. And then the second week I try and get outdoors and doing something each day. Very often that will involve non-triathlon sports. Uh, potentially mountain biking would be the closest to triathlon I do or surfing, but just getting outside, um, staying somewhat active after that, you know, and then, and then that third week, I might do one training session a day, but it'll be very much skills-based or just it's not overly stressful. And, you know, weeks four, five, six, you're easing back into, slowly easing back into a normal program. Yeah, that's, um, that's actually really crazy to think about that a, a professional athlete of your caliber has the confidence to give themselves four weeks off training because like a lot of people, they just get in a cycle of doing the same thing every week all year for five years or whatever it is. And they're sort of afraid to, to not train um, because they think their performance will go backwards. But I guess what you're saying is that's what you want and that's what you need to then go forward again. Yeah, it's, it's a real one step back to take the next five steps forward. And I I've, I've was exactly the sort of athlete you're talking about in that I really struggled to, to do the necessary time off. And if I look back at some of my best years, it was, um, you know, having that objective overview from a coach, even though I knew what I needed to do, I struggled to do it. And then having a coach there, I think, you know, in 2016, I took three lots of three-week breaks throughout the year. And that really set me up because I seem to get, you know, with so many years of um, training behind me now, I can get in race shape in six to seven weeks and I'm still, you know, I, I don't have that buildup accumulated fatigue that, that seems to come 12 to 14 to 16 weeks out. Like other people are very different. 
Um, but certainly I, even though I, I still found it very hard to do and I still find it hard to do to, to take that time off. It, it really has taken a lot of occasions where I didn't do the time and you just end up sort of racing a little bit, you know, pretty average just consistently. And, and every time I've done that break, you come back out, out thinking, how am I ever going to get fit again? And literally six to eight weeks later, you, you're flying and you're like, geez, that was worth it. <laughs> yeah. So inside this break, so let's go with this particular four-week break, but even how you've done it in the past, are you focusing on, on other things um, or are you giving yourself like a full break? For example, are you still focusing on eating healthy? Are you focusing on sleep or is it just more, sort of more a break from everything um, and, and, and you're really just trying to socialize and spend time with family and, and give yourself a, a, you know, a break from diet and that sort of thing? I think, it, um, I think it depends on the athlete. Like it's really hard for me, for me personally, I, I normally try and indulge in the things I've been missing out on. You know, you want to try and be a normal person, being really involved, you know, for me being far more involved, dad, you know, you don't stress about the diet as much. I get to a point where I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to get a bit chubby and then I'll wind <laughs> it back and start to eat a bit healthier, healthier and things like that. You know, and then there's certain athletes that I've coached who, if I, if, if they didn't worry about, you know, eating healthy or, you know, and, and they're not doing any training, they just put on 15 kilos and it's too hard to, to get them back in time for, you know, a February, March, April race. So different rules for different people, but for me, uh, you know, definitely you, you're trying to get more sleep, um, you know, avoid the early mornings, no alarms, uh, you know, and, and I think indulge on the things that you're normally very strict on that you, you wouldn't allow yourself or you might control uh, uh, control a lot more. Yeah. And, and with the, when, like the, this break coming to an end, does it come to an end? Do you just go, okay, I'm having four weeks. Um, or do you go, okay, I've got a race in say 16 weeks time from now. So if I give myself four weeks, that means I've got 12 weeks to get ready. Like how does, how does the planning around the, the length of the break work for you? Well, it's, it's, it's generally, I have to have, have to do the break. So often it'll be based around when the first target race is and it'll won't the time of the, the duration of the break won't normally change too much. Just the timing of when I, when I put it into the, that end of year period. So sometimes we used to have to race Asia pack champs in late January in New Zealand. And so my break would often be, you know, at the start of December, um, which didn't work great around family Christmas and everything, but that was just the nature of having a championship race where it fell. And then, you know, if my first target race for next year is Ironman Australia, which it likely will be, then I can actually put that break right into the, the Christmas period when, when everyone else is having a break. So it works a lot better. And, 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 you know, while I said that the duration doesn't normally change, I mean that the minimum duration doesn't change. You still need that four weeks at least what I do at the end of the year. But if I have a race, the, the target race is in May, I could extend that to six weeks, but I would, I would certainly be still bringing back some easy training in those fourth, fifth, six weeks, um, just so I'm not losing everything. It's very easy to maintain. It's, it's very easy to maintain fitness, Jack, compared to getting fitter. You'd be, I'm always amazed how little, especially experienced athletes can do to stay somewhat in shape. Um, you know, the, the real challenge when you're in, in season is getting fitter and faster, but the, you know, it's amazing what a 30 minute run every few days does for maintaining reasonable run conditioning and, and same on the bike, just a mountain bike every few days does, does something similar. Um, and also there's a lot of crossover sports you, you can include that just keep that general fitness on track. Yeah. And when you get back into it, do you already sort of know what you're going to do when you come back or is it more, I'll get to the end of that break and then reevaluate? Uh, it, it, it does change based on potentially what the weaknesses were in the past season. So if I was having a bit of a bad swim performances in the, in the past few races of the last season, then obviously the big focus coming back will be a swim block. And, you know, the, typically I wouldn't, the running is, is the last to come back in for me. That might have to change because last season, the, this past few races gone, my running wasn't where I thought it would be. So, yeah, it changes based on the athlete and based on what, what your strengths and weaknesses were. Certainly when you come back, you want to work more on your weakness than anything else. Uh, and that's where I'll try and build a lot of the base. If I'm, if I'm quite heavy, uh, I, I won't bring back much running at all until I'm, I'm closer to a, a weight that I know won't cause, cause me run injuries. 
Um, so, you know, that's normally the first thing that comes back is swimming and then cycling. And, uh, often I'll have to do quite a bit of riding if I'm six, seven, eight kilos overweight before I, before I start doing anything more than 25, 30 minute runs. Yeah. So what do you, this is, I don't know if you want to tell me this, but what is the most weight you've put on from coming off a, a race block to, to getting back into things, um, after a break? So the lightest I've raced at is 62 kilos, um, for 70.3s and, um, probably had some of my best 70.3s at that weight. I find I need to be heavier for Ironman. So okay. 64, 65 kilos. And then in off season, I can get up to 69, 70, I guess. I, I don't put on a ton of weight, but that's, um, you know, as a percentage of my total body weight, that's still reasonably significant. Yeah. I still think you like the average person would be, I reckon they just start stressing out if they'd put on eight kilos in their break, especially with the personality that, that triathlon and running and cycling and, and, and these sort of sports attract. So to hear that is actually pretty mind-blowing, really. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, it takes a lot of years of doing it before you realise that it's good for you. And, and, and most of us are, you know, at an elite level, you're sometimes teetering on the edge of uh, unhealthily light, you know, body weight. So I think it can be really good for your body to have a little bit of extra fat stores. It's good hormonally. You don't, you know, there's, there's a, there's a limit to it, but I'd say my natural healthy weight is probably around 67, 68. So I'm only, you know, one, one or two kilos over my probably healthy natural weight. If I was, you know, doing the normal exercise protocol of 30 minutes a day. So yeah, I think it's, it's hard for athletes. We have a bit of a morphed perspective. You know, there's, there's certainly a very much some body image issues. So it's, it's going to be a lot harder for some athletes rather than others. I think, you know, you look at runners and cyclists, it's so much of their performances are based around weight, whereas at least in triathlon, you have to stay, you can't get too skinny because, the you know, a time trial suffers, your swimming suffers, and it's probably the one uh, aspect of triathlon that is uh, a bit healthier than those other sports. Yeah. So when you're, so say for your last racing block, when you did get down to about 60, 62 kilos, which is just crazy to think about, um, are you focusing on that number or is that number a result of the training you're doing or, or does your diet reflect, okay, I'm trying to get down to this weight? So I, I got down to those numbers, um, 2016. I haven't, I haven't been that light in a long time. It's, it's almost, it's, it's often based around what the race, the championship or target race dynamics will be. You know, if I think it'll come down to the run or I think it's going to be a swim bike race, that will be the number that I'll target. But honestly, I, I've, I have gone down that path of chasing a number. And it's, I think it, it, while it, it worked, you know, for one or two races that year, there was huge periods where I was uh, underperforming, I think, from trying to hold too light a body weight. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. And I, I really don't encourage athletes to get too focused on the weight. I find if you're eating healthy and training hard and recovering well, you, your body will tend to go to where it naturally needs to be. You know, if there is there, you can play the card of getting lighter for a particular race. And I know plenty of athletes do, and it sometimes works out and it's a risk reward um, equation and, and, you know, you could give it a shot. There's a good chance that you'll, you can get it wrong, but if you get it right, sometimes it pays off, but often, you know, you can't sustain that form for very long at too light a body weight. And you've, um, you've brought up 2016 a few times, and that is something I want to, I want to do like a bit of a deeper dive into if we can. Um, so 2016 is the year that you won Ironman 70.3 world championships, which maybe outside of Kona and the Olympics is the hardest race in, in the triathlon world to win. Do you remember the training you, you did leading into that race? And can we do like a little bit of a dive into that training? I went through it recently, actually, leading up to St. George this year. I wasn't particularly healthy with asthma and things, but I thought oh, I'll try and have a look to so I can, you know, write my plan to somewhat replicate. And um, I do remember the training a lot. It was, it was actually quite sporadic. There were some really key weeks in there. I had a little bit of um, some health issues, you know, four, four weeks out, which actually caused me to, I just had to stop training almost altogether for a week. And I freshened up like I never had for other races. So if I had to summarize it, I had a huge base training block in Bend, Oregon, you know, just uninterrupted training, living with two other guys, 
I've raced quite a lot, but I was often a bit tired racing because the focus was the training. Then I came back to Australia. Um, you know, so I'd say there were some really good quality weeks, you know, 25 hours, 25 hour weeks of, you know, just nailing, you know, two quality sessions in each discipline and then some good aerobic volume around it. And then, but then some weeks, which were like 12 hours, you know, that really, some of them were unplanned, but it actually worked well because it allowed me to really bounce back. And I think go into that race fresher than I'd been before. Interestingly, like I know everyone focuses on the results and this is a bit off topic, but when I go back and look at my best years, 2015 and 2019 were by far my best. I had my best races objectively looking at the numbers. So, but you know, of course people care about the wins, not the, not the numbers, but uh, both 2015, 16 and 19, there was a pretty continuous theme of big days um, that really, you know, big days and then, but lots of small, easy days as well. So I've, I've always needed probably more rest and recovery than other people. Um, I don't give it, maybe that's because I don't lie in bed and rest like most athletes do. I'm always doing something in between. So I have to do a generally do a lower training volume and intensity load than other elite athletes. But yeah, I don't know. You'd probably have to hit me with more specific questions because I could, it's a bit of a broad answer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That was really good. Um, so with that block you did in bend leading into the, the 70.3 world champs in 2016, how long out from the race was that block and, and how long did that block go for? So my family and I got to bend in June and then um, they were there for three or four weeks. And then I did another four weeks. So I think I did eight weeks, June through and July. Yeah. Got back to Australia in August, maybe. Yeah, actually. Yeah, so it would have been early August and then came over to, yeah, and then had a few health issues, had to really freshen up actually. And then that was, and then just a couple more key weeks. Um, I actually did a really big week, two weeks out from 70.3s, which I normally would never work for me. Normally I have to do a sort of 12 to 15 hour week, two weeks out, and then a you know, seven to eight hour week in the taper week. But because I had that weeks four and five weeks out were really light on, I went an unusual um, sort of pattern and did a 25 hour week between seven and 14 days out and quite a lot of intensity too. So that I think the, the TSS score for those that use training peaks was up around 12, 1300. And then a really light week going into the race. Yeah, wow. And with those those sort of eight weeks you you spent in Bend, are they the weeks where you were pretty much just doing twenty five hours a week every week? And inside that, sort of, what more specifically did it look like? So, like, what kind of long rides were you doing on the bike? What were your bike sessions looking like? Same in the swim and the run. So, the probably averaging between twenty to twenty five a week. Um, I did a lot of swimming. I had Josh Amberger there actually, which was great for my swimming. Yeah. And how did the, I guess the structure was, I've, I've got a quite a, a naturally good top end. So my coach at the time, Matt Dixon, strength endurance and sort of that more just that, yeah, I guess aerobic efficiency was, was really good too, but my strength endurance was never great. So a lot of my bike sessions were that high zone two, low zone three, perfect form in TT position, just you know, a lot of low cadence work, getting stronger to try and then be able to run, use my top end on the run, you know, which would be very much the opposite style for a lot of other athletes, you know, you know, normally, you know, you steer away from gray zone training, but interesting for, for me, my bike's always gone really well with, with gray zone strength endurance work. Yeah. That, that's, that, that would be the bike sessions. The run, the runs were not overly intense. I did, you know, sort of 70 to 80k a week of running not a huge amount of speed work we do one you know maybe one interval session a week and use the racing i did quite a few races so i'd use the races you know more for the the high end um training a little bit more like a, a cycling sort of program um i even jumped into you know some of the local i did a local middle distance race there that was you know i think it might have been 500 bucks for the win and didn't make much sense financially to do it but it was just about uh, doing some hard hard training sessions, you know, very specific. Uh, and so that was, yeah, I guess that that was that was sort of it. It was a lot. I remember a lot of the training. Just I was very tired. I never really, um, I, I didn't really come good until 
probably Vineman 70.3, which was like the last race of that block in the US. And I had a, had a strong second to Andy Potts. And uh, that was the first time I'd sort of shaken off the fatigue and the bike power was back where I wanted. So obviously there was a huge block of training there, but also a lot of chronic fatigue that I needed to freshen up from in that month back in Australia. Yeah. And so with your running, how much uh, easy running are you doing? And like when you're doing sessions, sort of what pace are you doing your sessions at and what pace are you doing your easy runs at? Uh, so the sessions, I do a lot of race specific work. Um, you know, I'll do track sessions where I'm just running at the, you know, three to three twenty pace. I don't, I've never done tons of super fast speed work. I've just found with 70.3s, you know, you're running, it's strength running off the bike, not necessarily speed running. When I used to do Olympic distance, that was very different. I do a lot more 400s and 800s and, um, you know, really trying to get my speed up. Yeah. So I think the, 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 most of my steady running will be, you know, 410 to 430 per kilometer pace, um, just in that zone two, zone two range. Uh, I don't do a lot of easy, easy runs. I, I don't really think for triathletes doing 20 hours plus a week of training that there's much benefit to doing recovery runs as such. If you want to recover, just don't run. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I I understand that's totally different for ITU and for, you know, actual running where, you know, you're just trying to get mileage and become the absolute best, best runner you can with, you know, you're not trying to factor in getting stronger on the bike and swim all the time. So um, well, for runners, certainly. So yeah, I guess um, that's sort of that's sort of the range I would do, and yeah, I sort of eliminated easy runs from my program because I just didn't really see the value in it, given how much other aerobic training I'm doing in the pool and on the bike. Yeah, and you mentioned that um, leading into the World Champs that you won in 2016, you were coached by Matt Dixon. Are you still coached by him, um, or have you had you know multiple coaches over the years? I've had multiple coaches. I worked with Matt the long out, out of all the coaches I worked with. I worked with Matt the longest. We had a good, really good relationship. The the thing I loved about Matt was he very much. We learned off each other. He he was very much allowed me to have a lot of input, and he also let me make mistakes. You know, I think he sometimes disagreed with what I wanted to do, and but he wasn't. We never never resulted in arguments or anything. He was he was happy for me to learn the hard way. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I finished up with Matt in 2016. I wanted to try a different path with Ironman training. That, to be honest, 70.3s no really no longer really interested me after that year. I was like, all right, now's the next target, which was Kona. Um, and I just felt like you know we had a I, you know in retrospect, I probably should have tried a few more years with Matt. There's always things you regret. But yeah, no, it was a, it was a, it was a great relationship. And even, even in 2017, he, we, he um, was a strong advisor on, on much of what I did, which was, which was really helpful. So after you stopped working with him then to, to pursue sort of the Ironman journey, did you just go straight into another coach or were you self-coached? I was self-coached. Um, and then I worked with, I was self-coached for 2017. And to be honest, I think a lot of it would have paid off. I just had a really I really did have quite an unlucky run with sickness and a house move. Like we just, we, we made a, probably a few poor choices in terms of um, like personally, just that we made our life a lot harder moving way out of town and, and, you know, the kids are getting older. There was more commitments. And I think the, the biggest, yeah. I mean, I, I was horribly sick before 2017 world champs, you know, with influenza A the week of the race. And then, so it's hard to know how, how it would have gone without, you know, I had Ross River fever the first few months of the year and I just don't know how it would have gone <laughs> without all that sickness. And then 2018, I worked with Alan Cousins, who's an excellent coach in his own right, very different to Matt Dixon, but very science-driven. Um, and I learned a ton from him as well. Uh, you know, I, I was really pleased to work with him. Uh, and I also worked with in 2004, 15, I worked with um, both Matt Dixon and Dan Plews simultaneously. And uh, that was a great, I, I really enjoyed that as well. It was hard. It was, I found it hard really taking on two coaches advice, advice though. And, you know, some of their thinking was quite different and, you know, both had their strengths and weaknesses. And, and in the end, we ended up, I ended up just going back to Matt to keep things more simple, but 
yeah, I've certainly worked with some brilliant coaches and, and I'm really grateful for what I've learned off them. And they've all taught me quite different things actually that I, I've found that I can use in my own coaching, in my own style. So how do you decide, okay, I'm going to leave this coach? Because I assume it's, well, I know for, from my own personal experience, it's it's quite a commitment to go, okay, I'm going to hire this person um, and I'm going to, you know, listen to everything they say, bring them on board to help my performance. So how do you, how does the process of going, okay, I need to um, get rid of this coach and move on to something else? How does that work? Why does it come about? Yeah, everything like that. I think sometimes you see the weak, like, you know, every, no coach is perfect and they have strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes you're like, oh, I really want to fill this small gap. And you find someone that might fill that gap or you think might fill that gap. Sometimes it's just a purely, (laughs) partly it's financial, you know, there's no secret. Matt Dixon's quite expensive. And, you know, there's aspects like that that come into play, but ultimately you're looking for, uh, something different that, you know, that you feel like they might be able to bring to the table that you're not nailing in training and racing. And so each of those coaches was very different in terms of what, what strengths they had. And so, yeah, it's hard because none of the coaches that I ever think, oh, this isn't working or this isn't, you know, it, for me, it was, I was always just hungry to learn more. And I think looking back, I was almost too, I would make changes too quickly. Uh, I've learned, you know, that sometimes, especially with Matt, we, we adapted things gradually over time to find a recipe that really worked. And I think, you know, with Alan Cousins, for example, I was too late in my career to do that time, you know, to give the, the year and a half, two years where we could find a really good system that worked for me. And so, you know, I think part of it is my own flaw. I was, I was a bit too impatient. Um, I was always very ambitious and if you know if I didn't win races I'd be livid and you know looking to make changes too quickly now when I look back as an old man (laughs) I'm um I can see that you know certainly I had a lot of flaws as a young ambitious athlete and one of those flaws was probably changing my team too much yeah so if you were if you were to give advice to a younger athlete right now would you just say, hey, find a coach that you believe in and, and stick true to the process until you, you find that success or, yeah? I think do their, they should really do their research. Um, talk to the athletes that that coach works with. You know, pick carefully. Don't just jump in with someone. But once you have picked, really give it some time and communicate with that coach and, and try and find, you know, because it, it can take a year to really, really dial things in. It can take up to two years um, with a younger athlete. So it's it's about, yeah, you, you can't expect a magic a magic change in performance. Um, they've got to work work with you over time and really get to know your personality and and what strengths you have as a weak uh, strengths and weaknesses you have athletically. So. Yeah, I, I really think it would be pick carefully and and then pick and stick. Yep. Um, and then you said, so in, at the end of that 2016 season, you decided you were done with Ironman 70.3 and wanted to focus on the longer distance in, in, in the Ironman. How did your training change to chase that goal? Um, the, my, my biggest issue, Jack, I think was I, I never fully let 70.3s go. So I'd always be, and I couldn't do badly in races. I, I wouldn't allow myself. So I'd be training for an Ironman and then I'd insert these big tapers to do a 70.3 well along the way, or I would include three races because on the way into an Ironman, because I was money hungry. Um, and so uh, to be honest, I didn't do it very well. I was trying to, I, uh, overall, when I looked at my season, I was like, what do I want to achieve? I want to win Ironman Australia. I want to go to Hawaii and go top 10 or whatever the goals were. But then as I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll include that race as well. I can, you know, make it, make an easy X number of dollars or miss race along the way. So, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm totally honest, I didn't do, do it very well. And I think the hardest part about Ironman is you can only do two or three a year. And if you do them well, you probably need to race a lot less along that way. And, uh, you know, with a young family and everything, I needed to make money as well. So I didn't, I never backed myself enough in Ironman to really commit to it. The years, the times that I did, I had some great races, but it was rare that I did. And so the, the hard part for Ironman pros is, is making money. You've only got a few races a year um, to really capitalize. So 
I, I couldn't live with that risk of, hey, if this doesn't work out, I've turned down 370.3s on the way that I knew I could have had easy podiums in. So, yeah, how did it look? A bit, bit haphazard. Often, I, maybe that's part of the reason I kept getting sick in 2017. I was trying to do too much um, alongside with racing. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's the honest answer. So did, um, did your training not really change that much because you were still trying to target the 70.3s for, for the win and, and the money, like you said? So you were trying to, to, to transition to Ironman, but your, your training remained pretty much the same. You just inserted more races and then some longer stuff? or So it did change. The, the key sessions were, were a lot longer. And it was the first, it, it was the real kickoff of when I started to become a lot more inconsistent with my performances because of the fatigue. I mean, we had, we we're getting to that point where um, particularly in, you know, once we had three kids, you know, there's, there comes a point where life got a lot busier too. So it was a combination of way more responsibilities at home, trying to do still race, but then trying to add in, you know, 30 K runs more regularly and five, six hour rides. And it wasn't a good combination, you know, yeah. the, the best, ideally if you're increasing your, your key sessions you need to be increasing your rest and I certainly wasn't doing that uh, so the only times I would get that right was when I'd go away for a training camp and then I'd normally this was the first year that I've done that where it didn't pay off but I'd normally come away with some wins and or really really breakthrough performances from getting away from home and doing those you know three four weeks of um, pretty intense training but more importantly the intense resting yeah <laughs> just actually just actually eating sleeping training so when you're at home um, doing like the the majority of your training are you doing that all solo or do you train with a group so I now have a group up here that I, I sort of coach but uh, in the past I mean initially when I was very young pro I trained with um, Aeromax Grant Giles's group which was fantastic and then that sort of um, drifted apart and I would train a lot with Burkle and, uh, you know, some individual sports guys up here as well. Um, but typically, my if I look back, most of my best races actually came from training by myself. I, and I've never, I, I, I sort of miss, I sort of like to train with people now, but I was so focused on hitting the, uh, the objectives of the session that I never minded training by myself. Um, which is uh, doesn't doesn't work for a lot a lot of people, but especially on the bike, I genuinely didn't like riding with other people because I I'd be like, ah, oh, I'm not in my, you know, I'm not at two twenty watts, and I want to be at two twenty. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> especially triathletes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think um, like have you ever taken much notice of what other athletes you compete against her, her, like are doing, or is your training solely focused on you always, and that's all you're thinking about? Yeah, probably too much notice early on in my career, you know, especially training with a group up here, you know, with Clayto, Clayton Fattel, who was a mileage responder, you know, Burkle also seems to do pretty well on aerobic volume. And um, it was only when I moved to Matt Dixon that he really gave me the confidence to shut off from what other people were doing and just find a recipe that worked for myself. So, yeah, I have, I have made that mistake in the past and now I really try and push on push on my athletes and, and the guys and, and on myself to just do what I know uh, I'm capable of based on the, you know, daily recovery and also just what's worked in the past. Yeah. And cause you hear a lot of stories about um, guys who train 30, 35, 40 hours a week, but you're sitting here telling me that you're training, you know, 20, 25, sometimes, you know, down as low as, as 12 hours a week. Are, the, are those stories just blatant, blatantly not true? Or do do, you, do some people in that you compete against train that much and, and you've just sort of um, established the confidence to not try and copy that sort of thing? Yeah. Oh, I mean, people definitely do that much. I mean, you know, I can think of plenty of guys that, that I know for sure train that much. Um, they typically have a bit of a different home environment. You know, they'll walk in and they're, partner brings them their smoothie and they get on the couch and that's it for the day um like you know I, I know you know for example before Burkle had kids he would often do 30 hour weeks and there but now that he's got a son and responsibilities it's just it's just a limit to to that sort of lifestyle and also we've done that we've done those years of that sort of mileage like I certainly did 30 hour weeks when I was 24 uh, probably 25 26 27 and I don't think that that like I certainly didn't race my best when I was doing that but I built up an aerobic base that 
has probably allowed me to do 20 hour weeks. So I think it's really individual. I do think guys do it for hundred percent, but there's, you got to factor in what's the situation when they're not training. And typically the only guys I know who can do that are either single and don't have much to worry about, or they've got, you know, they work, you know, really in a team with their wife or girlfriend and, you know, it's get home, don't do anything. Um, which I'm not against. It's if they're happy to do that, that's just, I'll admit there's been times when I'm jealous of it, but (laughs) at the same time, I've got three, you know, amazing boys that I love spending time with. I don't regret making my life more complicated with, uh, for the sake of triathlon results. Yeah. And, um, you're a coach now as well. So how do you go about giving that advice to, to the athletes you work with? So most people you work with, I assume have a full-time job, probably full-time family commitments, if not at the very least a partner. Um, so, and, but they're also seeing people at the top of their sport who are doing those 30, 35 hours a week. And, and it can sometimes breed this mindset of, okay, I want to train more. I want to train twice a day. I want to do, you know, X amount of hours across all three disciplines. So how do you go about, you know, um, like advising people maybe to step away from training like a madman and focusing on other aspects of their life? Well, I think because I've seen the, what happens to athletes when they do go down that rabbit hole of trying to fit in training whenever they've got a spare moment. And, uh, you know, it, it literally, I hate to say it, but it's, it's no worse than any other addiction. It can destroy families. It destroys people, um, performance at work. And so I see my role as a coach, depending on the athlete um, and their situation, but also just keeping an overview of, hang on, this is, you've got three kids, you've got um, a job. So longer term, if you want to be really good at, triathlon or if you want to improve at triathlon we need to make this a sustainable level of training that you're not going to quit in six weeks or you know you're not going to have a divorce in eight weeks (laughs) so (laughs) the uh yeah i really feel like that's why i like doing personalized proper coaching i like to know the athlete i'm coaching their whole situation and then and, and it can be the total reverse with athletes, you know, with a young pro who doesn't have much on and I'm like, you need to focus and, and this has to be a bit of an obsession if you want to be at the, the best in the sport. So there's no, you know, you know, it's, it's a very different scenario for different athletes, but certainly for a lot of the amateur athletes, I feel my role is to remind them and to keep, to remind them to maintain balance and to keep things um, sustainable. Yeah, interesting. Um, just to take it back to your your own training for a little bit. When you're when you're training, are you are you motivated by your family and providing for them, or is it is it all intrinsic and and you are out there training because you you want to win and you know that the training you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be doing it will lead to that that result and, and like other things. So like, what are you thinking about when you're training for twenty five hours a week? Yeah, so it's probably trained, changed a lot throughout my career. Early on, you know, they called me the angry gnome for a reason because I was always, I used to love just creating things to get angry about and have a chip on my shoulder and I'd be out, you know, oh, how can that person have this many sponsors when I've trained, you know, <laughs> I'd just create, create enemies in my head and I'd, you know, fired up by that and go out and but that's not that sustainable. And it certainly wasn't a good attitude to have going into Ironman racing because you can't, you can't race off anger fumes. And then over the, yeah, once I had kids, certainly a huge driver was thinking, you know, when I'd be out training or racing, I'd think about the sacrifices Mon and, and the kids were making too by, and, and um, you know, and also just financially motivated because, uh, you know, you can't, if, you, if, you, if, I, if everyone's making these sacrifices, I can't, I've got to be making decent money or it's just a selfish hobby. So that was a big part of it, a uh, big part of my thinking. And, and then as I, I guess in my, in, in the last few years, it's, it's very much, um, I, I think I've become more mindful with my racing, especially with Ironman. I've, I've trying to find ways to quieten the mind and, and really just stay focused on what I'm doing. And even in training, I'll, I'll try and do that because I, I think a lot of athletes will, will know the feeling of when you just can't shut your brain down when you're out training. And, you know, sometimes I have to almost stop and pull up on the bike and just, do some, do some mindful breathing and then just calm the mind and then get back to focusing on key things. So yeah, it's changed a lot throughout my career, Jack, but yeah, at the moment it's, I I use training often just for, it depends on the sessions, but you know, I'll try and do in the harder sessions, I normally focus on 
key things, one or two key things that would just keep my mind focused on the task. And for my easier sessions, sometimes I use it to really de-stress and unwind. And yeah, I guess that's, that's the main mindset at the moment. Yeah. And, and do you still train? Is there still an aspect of it just because you love it? And, and is that why you got into it? Or for you, was it always just about racing and, and you got involved in it because of that competitive side? I've always loved training, but I was always a fierce competitor. Um, from as long as I can remember, I'd create whatever race I could, you know, with the neighbours around the backyard or, um, you know, with my sisters or whatever was going on, I'd, I'd want to compete at it. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I've, but I can't see myself ever stopping training either. Like I, I've, I do really enjoy the training. I would say that, that, yeah, I'd say that the enjoyment of training is easier and socially has actually gone up, whereas I used to hate that easy social training. I was all about competing. So I guess it's switched a little bit. I still love the competitive side of it, but I'm more um, open and in, to enjoying the just training with someone for, for a chat and being healthy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think as you get, you know, I'm 36 now, the, the health benefits of training are probably as much in my mind as the uh, – as getting fitter for races. Whereas when I was younger, I think it was very much competitive, um, a competitive driven motivation to, to get out training. Yeah. And, and on that, is there a particular training session you can remember or, or just a regular that you go to that, that you would say, Hey, that's, that's my favorite training session. Oh, uh, no, not really. It sort of has switched. I find I go through phases with each sport. Like at the moment, I'm just loving swimming, which is, doesn't happen often <laughs> and uh, just loving doing technique and technical work on my swim. And so that's, you know, and then I've been through phases where I've loved 30 K runs at Ironman pace, you know, that that will be my favorite session of the week. And I, I honestly can't, can't give you a, a, a set session that that's always been my favorite. It just changes every few months. On the flip side, is there, is there a session that you've just always hated and dreaded? Um, I've never enjoyed being in a pool longer than 2K. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, you know, you condition your brain to just accept it. And, you know, there's been periods of time where I've done, you know, 6K, 5, 6K sessions and got used to it. But no, I, I don't, yeah, I'd say that the biggest problem for me is duration in the pool. That first 2K, I just love swimming. And then after that, I'm like, right, let's call it. This is enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And with your, with your training, so, or just with your like sort of philosophy on performance, are you only thinking about training or are you someone who thinks about everything and like, okay, I want to have, you know, an incremental gain here with my tire choice and with what shoes I'm running in and what goggles I'm wearing? Yeah. So I've always been, um, a lot of people think it's, you know, just a, a really obs- obsessive um nature to care about every single detail but part of it is i don't want to you know sometimes your choices could be the same as six months training so it's almost lazy (laughs) i'm being lazy and finding advantages with the you know the equipment i use because i don't want to i don't want to lose out on or i don't want to have to do that six months of incredible training just to get five watt gain or 12 watt gain so uh, i don't know there's there's I've always been really interested in the aspects of cycling to, to be faster. And even with running now with the different shoes and it's just something that's always interested me. Uh, and I think a lot of that is, is um, competition driven as well. You know, I don't know, I don't re- necessarily have that engineer brain type, but I've sort of developed that because I care about winning races. Yeah. So, you know, the details matter. Is there, what, what are some changes that you've made or like things you've implemented in that sort of sense that have made sort of the biggest changes to performance for you? Oh, I think early on I was just riding, you know, I think I was riding gator skins and in my first few pro races and wondering why I was losing 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, once I, I borrowed a set of wheels off one person for a race and suddenly I had the second quickest bike speed and, and get some really good guys. And I said, like, oh, wow this makes a huge difference. And then I went down the rabbit hole of tires and rolling resistance and tubes and that, that obsession's never ended. You know, I'm constantly testing tires and um, you know, wheels were a big factor for a while there because a lot of wheels had a great shape that worked with, you know, worked with 23 to 25 mil tires, but a lot didn't as well. Whereas now they're all sort of catching up to each other. So you look for, you know, I'm, I'm lucky with 
um, Trek and Bontrager that now I look for th- things like hub quality and, you know, stiffness and th- aspects of that wheels, you know, the cheaper wheels don't have, but they all, a lot of them are sort of copying the more aero shapes. So you've got to look at different aspects of the, of the wheel, you know, and then there's been things that I've sort of been ignorant on and, you know, maintained my ignorance because, you know, like racing in a budgie smuggler and tri top, you know, it always worked out for me, but then, you know, if you look at the data, I was probably giving up quite a few watts with uh, not having aero, an aero suit on, but there's a lot to be said for the psychological advantage of a crowd cheering for you or staying cooler on the bike and things like that. So, you know, as much as I um, followed some areas closely and, and really refined all the details, there are other areas where I probably remained, oh, I think I chose to remain ignorant and you can, and certainly you can go down, you can go down a path of just being way too obsessive with things. And I, I did do that and certain races, you know, when I'd get really anxious and about races, I'd be changing everything on my bike up to the day before and just derail my whole event. And um, when I learned to, when the races where I could just set and forget and leave things um, nearly always played out better for me. Yeah, that's, yeah, like I, I think particularly in a sport like triathlon, like say running, for example, really all you're thinking about is what shoe you're going to wear, maybe a little bit of nutrition choice, but outside of that, it's pretty simple. But triathlon's such a complicated sport with the swim, particularly with the bike and then and then also having the run. Yeah, yeah. I think, sorry to interrupt, but I think that the bike, as it, people just don't understand that, you know, a time trial for that length of time, not in the, not in a Peloton, just small things can win a race or get you fifth in a race on the bike. And that's what is so, that's what drives me to so much anxiety with the bike. Um, you know, things matter so much. Sorry to interrupt. You. Yeah. No, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. So with that um, and, and with, with everything you've learned for someone who is, you know, just racing an age group triathlon, what would you say are the, like the, the couple of, of most important things to nail in terms of equipment choice or, or, or just something that's not simply the training you're doing that will increase performance the most? I mean, the obvious one is um, bike fit. Um, comfort and, and reasonable aerodynamics is so important, uh, especially for the, the longer the distance you go. Um, and also just to prevent injuries and, you know, a lot of, a lot of issues people get on the run are, I think are actually caused by, you know, exacerbating imbalances on the bike. Um, so bike fit would be the number one thing. And then, you know, your, your hydration choices are huge because um, every time you reach down to get bottles or things like that, you're breaking aero and that, that can end up by the end of 180 kilometers. That can be a huge disadvantage if you, if you don't have a straw right in front of your face to sip from, you know, and then obviously tires are, are quite, are quite important. Of course, now everyone's sort of caught up, but certainly 10 years ago, you could be looking at, you know, five to eight minutes difference between what, just what tires pros were using over an Ironman distance. So that, that'd probably be the, the biggest things is just, uh, yeah, bike fit would be the number one, number one aspect. Yeah. Um, and, and another little, um, sort of side game that, that people have really started to obsess about is, is gym work and strength and conditioning when it comes to the endurance athlete. Have you focused on that throughout your career and, and are you focusing on that now? Yeah. So I've always had to do it. I had a pretty bad, I was hit by a car in 2009, right before I turned pro. And, um, that actually, I, I never had really had to do gym work before that. I had a pretty functioning body. And then uh, I had, I've, since then, um, I've always had to do, do the gym work. And yeah, I've, I, I think, you know, there's some coaches who say, oh, but it, you know, it doesn't directly increase performance. And the biggest thing that interrupts someone's progression is injuries. And if you can prevent injuries, um, I think in the long term, strength training is hugely important for that. And in the long term, you uh, you will continue to improve. Uh, it's rare. It's very rare to see endurance athletes not improve under the age of forty years of age, fifty years of age. So it's about consistency and not doing anything crazy and and staying injury free. Yeah. And I'm just going to change tack a little bit here, but something I've always really uh, been fascinated on is the dynamics of racing at the professional level. Like I, I know I was talking to, to Josh Amberger the other day about the dynamics of the bike at Kona. How much of your training is there to simulate what actually happens in a race or is it all just about getting the most out of yourself? No, it's, it's very much about simulating a race. So 
you know, the world championship races, unfortunately, are still only 10 metres apart between bikes. So a race like Kona, for the guys in the pack, um, you've got to get good at surges. It's, it's not, I mean, it's, it is still quite different, but there's aspects that are similar to a bike race in that over those rollers with that Constantine effect, you really need to be able to surge, you know, 100 watts above threshold to stay with that group because there's still a huge advantage riding with that group as much as I've always asked for it to be a 20-meter gap between pros. So, yeah, that you've got to train that or you've got to have a different strategy to not ride with that group because if you don't you know people say oh why don't you just open up and let um not do the surges and then ride back up every time you slot back more than 10 meters two guys slot in on you and you end up you know a minute down on the the group pretty quickly because you don't want to be right at the back of that group the other aspect you know that is is really not talked about a lot but plays a huge role is lead motorbikes um media uh yeah, and, and even the draft marshals, they, they don't even realise sometimes how much advantage they're giving. But having motorbikes alongside you, drifting in front of you, obviously, um, blocking crosswinds is massive. Yeah. And every time I get to a front of a race, I realise, man, if I was a better swimmer, I would have won a lot more races yeah. because it's way easier. And people say, oh, but there's a big advantage in the pack. It's only a big advantage if someone's pulling you and staying up. You know, normally there's a couple of guys that will pull the group and everyone else sits on, which is an advantage to them, but you rely on, you know, you end up, I hate riding the pack because you're always trying to stay in the race with five guys sitting behind you. Once you're at the front, that advantage of media and vehicles and everything else is enormous. I mean, Gustav Eden just rode a 405 time in Florida and he rode uh, 255 Watts. That's, you know, he's an, you know, he's, once in a lifetime athlete, don't get me wrong, but that's a huge advantage from media. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, you know, to ride 405, would, he'd have to be riding closer to 280 watts at his size and weight, uh, you know, unless he's, there's something else I don't know about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's massive. And uh, it's, uh, I, I, unfortunately, you know, lead vehicles have played a role in races for too long and they've never really made any sense to me why they're there. Cause, but you know, with the media, it's just, I think it's just going to be something we have to accept. We want to showcase the sport and um, I think there's ways they can slowly learn how to do it better. And we don't need 15 bikes like you've got in Roth, you know, or Ironman Frankfurt, you know, riding alongside the front guys. Motorbike alongside you still pulls you along. But um, certainly we still need media. So that, that they're always going to play a role. Um, and it's just going to become, I think, the more coverage we get, the more pros will just have to factor it into their race tactics the same way that cyclists do in, you know, the top tier media covered, media covered events. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think there is a way to change that? Like if you could, if you could implement one thing right now, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand. I don't know much about drones and things like that, but I'm sure there's better ways to get coverage from up top. Um, but I think, I think certain it's hard with road closures if, unless you've got really broad roads. I'd like to see media film from a bit further, you know, much wider um, and diagonally behind the, behind the riders where they can. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Certainly there's an easy answer to the lead vehicles and we've been calling for it for a long time. Um, but I'm not sure about the media. That's a much tougher, tougher one to solve. But I certainly wouldn't want the media to be any less. So we need as much coverage as we can get. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that was that's fascinating. Because um, I've always thought that was a problem too. Oh, you. you can clearly see that, like in Kona, for example, that the guys who are out in front from from sort of you know the start of that bike, they just get such a massive advantage over the guys trying to catch up on the swim that it almost makes the swim the most important element of Kona to a degree because you really can't like unless you're just an amazing like cyclist it's it's almost impossible to to catch and, and win um if, if you're you know two three minutes down from the lead group out of the swim yeah I think it depends a lot on the wind like last Kona certainly the the, the wind was quite unusual and where the media was sitting would have blocked a lot of the wind. Um, and, you know, none of those front guys will put up their power because they know the guys behind them probably done, you know, 20 watts more and lost five minutes. So I, I think it's, uh, it'd be really interesting if there was an open discussion about it and people were happy to publish data. Um, 
I, you know, at the same time, like I said, now we know that's the way it is. And so, you know, if someone wants to really wants to win Kona, they have to be able to swim with those front, front few guys now, or they have to be just such a level above on the bike. Um, and I think with different wins, guys like Cam and Sebi and Lionel would have had a much better chance, but they just, it was a bit unlucky. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, I think people know what the, what the game is. You know, if you ask me honestly, are you going to swim 30k a week and learn how to swim with those guys? I just, I'm just not, I don't know if I want to destroy my life like that. So, yeah, it's just the way it is, and it's probably going to always be that, at least a bit like that for, for the guys that attract that media attention and the guys that can swim so amazingly. Yeah, and with these guys you're racing, um, you're obviously racing the biggest names in the sport. Is there any guys that you sort of fear racing or is there any guys that you love to race um, or is there any guys that you look at and, and they're sort of just your bunny a bit and you know, oh, this this boat can't beat me? I don't like racing the really good swimmers. Um, the Josh Amberger, Appleton, these guys just, um, it changes the whole dynamics of the race and if you're not, if you're not sure if there's going to be some assistance up front or whatever. It's, it's normally me and two other guys or another guy having to chase them the whole race. And it gets a bit, it's that dynamic. I sort of, sort of makes it hard. Um, then, you know, I don't know. I, no, I wouldn't say I fear them. It's just a, I know it can make for a frustrating dynamic because they're pretty relentless on the bike, but also, you know, it can just mean uh, just a hard chase the whole race. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, uh, at the moment, are you, so you, you've just sort of said that you're going to have this break and then you're going to potentially train for an Ironman Australia, um, which is an Ironman in, in May. Is that sort of the, the next big thing on the cards or is it, is it world champs next year? Um, I'll train for Ironman Australia. I want to do, to be honest, I really want to focus a lot more on coaching. I've got some good opportunities with some more pros and, but at the same time, I still think I have, the time and ability to train for, for races. And I'll do, you know, the races that really get me excited, like Ironman Australia. I also want to include some more fun races. I don't want to get to the end of my career and, and be like, Oh, we should have done that while I was still really fit, you know? So uh, potentially run a marathon, do some gravel races, but things like that, you know, I, I could, I could pretend that I'm fully focused on Kona and whatever else, but I think most of my sponsors now know that that's not my, focus anymore i like i want to be a better dad and be around a bit more but never say never like i if i if things with um you know i'll soon have three kids you know at school which will change things a lot so you know i wouldn't say who knows it might be a bit of an easier year next year in terms of focusing on different things and and trying to really um help the athletes i coach a bit more but then you know the year after i might find wow i've got a lot more time than i expected and i might then refocus on a world championship but certainly this the last two years really if i'm honest really burnt me out i you know had one of probably my best year objectively in 2019 along with 2015 and then training up i've trained up for so many ironmans that were cancelled even this last us us trip you know, most of the, the whole trip was based around, I really wanted to get a, a quick Ironman done and Ironman California was cancelled on the race morning. And it's just uh, for the amount of sacrifices that my family's made, it was pretty heartbreaking. And I was just like, I just don't, I don't want to be fully reliant on uh, racing the same way that I have in the past. And, and I want to move into more into a coaching role because I've had great support from a lot of people and, you know, especially Monica and my wife's made a lot of sacrifices for a long time. So it's, I think it's my turn to um, not be as selfish and try and give more on the home front. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Hey, um, you've mentioned uh, that you go away for, for training camps um, a couple of times now with your training camps. Are you a believer in going to altitude or, or, or going away to heat train or is it just the people or, or the place? Yeah. Um, Altitude works. Um, there's no doubt. Uh, it's hard to, it's easy to get it wrong though. And, uh, I've certainly done it both ways where I've come off altitude and had some of my best races. I think if you are unsure and you want to, <laughs> if you want to really just really train the house down, I think heat's a, a better option. They both work. There's no doubt about it. And I've had, I've had some of my best races off both, but I've had more Un, unexpected bad races from altitude blocks where I thought I was in amazing form and then I've 
just been like exhausted. So uh, certainly it's got to be managed really well with a coach overseeing it, or at least really, really going in with a plan and easing into the training and so easy to overtrain at altitude. So yeah, it's individual like most things. And I would, um, they both work. And certainly I think if you really want to win a world title or be in the top 10, you cannot go into a world championship without having done either an altitude block or a heat block. Yeah, wow. be very difficult. Yeah, that's massive. But, hey, it's very easy to get heat adaptations. You don't necessarily need to go on a camp, but you still got to do the heat adaptions because there's so many benefits even for a cold race. Yeah. So do you do a lot of like um, inside riding for, for heat adaptation or is it all outside? Yeah, absolutely. I'll do some heat sessions going into going into pretty much most races. Um, again, it's the same. Th- in some ways, that can be the same thing as altitude. You've got to be the timing's got to be right. Um, you don't want to do it too close to to bed, or even I typically would never do it even after midday because it's too hard to get rehydrated again and, and then sleep well. So you end up you can end up just sort of unraveling your week because you end up exhausted. So. But, you know, they've shown that even four heat sessions, the adaptions that you get are, are pretty impressive. So it's worth, uh, it's worth including for sure. Yeah, it's crazy um, some of the research coming out around heat adaptation, heat adaptation. And just on that, I just thought about it. How much of your riding do you do inside? Like Zwift and, and riding on a, on a kicker are so massive now um, that almost everyone does it. Do you, have you adopted that sort of um, way of training on the bike or is most of your stuff outside still? So my plan for this year, because I'm going to experiment with a few different ideas for uh, triathlon training, you know, much more minimal style. I'll do almost everything, most of the riding indoors, I think, just for time efficiency. Whenever I've had great races, I've been doing a lot of indoor riding. But, yeah, I mean, it can, you know, what it's like in Australian summer, sitting in your garage, it's pretty hard to do it all indoors. But I do most of my time trial and intervals indoors. And then everything else is on my roadie or gravel bike or mountain bike outside um, for the for generally for the aerobic work. But that might change next year as I try and bring down the number of hours that I'm training. Yeah, and and your training inside is that all to power? So, or, or is it to heart rate? Or or do you not use metrics to judge what you're training? Oh no, it's hundred percent both. I find both are useful by having both. I can really see when I'm getting fatigued too, so that you know the first thing I'd notice as I'm heading into overtraining is I get a very suppressed heart rate. Um, so I'll be, you know, pushing Ironman wattage and my heart rate's at 108. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's a really good sign. I need to wind it back. Um, yeah. So I tend to use as much met- <laughs> both metrics and information is power. So I try and get all my athletes to give me, get anything they can when it comes to measuring things. Yep. Hey, uh, I'm just conscious of how long I've kept you, but there is one other thing I sort of want to talk about because uh, it's something I sort of follow on, along with as well as uh, a lot of people who follow you on Instagram, I'm, I'm sure, is uh, is the shoe reviews. <laughs> um, it, 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 it appears to me that you've become pretty obsessed with, uh, with super shoes lately. Um, again, I think it was driven very much by um, being, you know, wanting to win races. But, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> Ironically... I wish they were all banned <laughs> because I, I've noticed, you know, for myself, it's a little bit like good swimmers versus bad swimmers, the benefit in percentage they get from, um, from a wetsuit. I, I, I've, sat, I've done testing with multiple athletes and I, the benefit I get from a super shoe is way less than what other guys get. So it's not an even playing field. Um, you know, I've seen guys get 6 to 8% benefits and then – yeah, I'm I'm way way lower. <laughs> like I'm just a couple of heart rate beats. Um, yeah. So for people who don't know, we're talking about running shoes and and the latest uh, trend in the running world for for all the brands to be, bring out a, a super shoe that uses um you know a magic foam and and, and generally speaking a carbon plate. If you follow Tim's uh, Instagram, he uh, he's been testing all of them and then posting uh, his thoughts on them. So yeah, the one thing that really did my head in, Jack, was I. I made the assumption, which is the worst thing you should do with testing, that 16, a shoe at 16 kilometres an hour would be the same as at 18, 19 and, you know, 20 kilometres an hour. And over in Boulder, I realised that that's not the case. So for, especially for cadence runners like myself. And so um, that sort of did my head in and made me want to go retest everything. So, um, 
but yeah, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely interesting because you sometimes you're weighing up performance with keeping an athlete injury free and um, you know the, the expense of three hundred and fifty dollars shoe that only lasts eighty k. You know, there's a lot to lot to think about with it all, but it's certainly uh, certainly interesting and it's it's changed the way it's changed running in the sport uh, in triathlon. Same as obviously running, but there was a time when every seventy point three you'd have one or two guys could go under 112 and now you're seeing like half the pro fields running sub 112 and that just wasn't possible with the old shoes, you know, so. It's crazy, isn't it? Made a big difference, yeah. If you were going to run a marathon tomorrow, what, what shoe do you wear? Oh, trend, I'd have to train in there a fair bit, but um, probably the Alpha Fly, I'd say, for fresh running. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you? I know you're, you're, you know more about shoes than even me. What's, what do you think for you? Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Alpha fly. Yeah. Alpha fly if you're doing a straight marathon. I don't love it. But I love it at Ironman pace off the bike too. Yep. Um, I find it really hard to run quicker than like 3.30 in it though. I yep. just can't get my cadence up enough. Yeah, I think, I think that's why a lot of people have um, shifted to the, the ASICS Metaspeed Sky. I think that is a little bit better um, if you are running a, a touch faster, so say maybe like a half marathon or yeah, I, I, that would be the other shoe I'd probably probably use for the marathon because it's I just like that it's just not quite as spongy. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, because yeah. that that is what a lot of people struggle with with the Alpha Alpha Fly. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I would have. Yeah, I, I I don't. I guess if I was to run a marathon tomorrow, but if I was to train up to actually run it. Well, I think I'd be going the Metaspeed Sky. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if I had to run tomorrow, <laughs> you need that as much cushioning as you can just to survive. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, this has been awesome, awesome, Reedy. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it, even if you uh, had to break into your own house to, to make it on time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah sorry about that uh, story for another day um yeah so <laughs> thanks so much um it was it was fascinating uh, i literally loved every second of that so um can't thank you enough no nah, pleasure mate i enjoyed it too so thanks for the chat awesome thanks uh thanks again have a good day ready <laughs> <laughs>